You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state, and three, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. As we record this episode of the People's War Radio Show, the trial of Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd is still underway. It began on March 30th and is being broadcast live on network television. Nearly two weeks into the trial, on Sunday, April 11th, police in nearby Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis, shot and killed an unarmed black driver, 20-year-old Dante Wright, in a traffic stop. The police killing of George Floyd in May of 2020 prompted hundreds of thousands of people to take to the streets in hundreds of cities across the globe, demanding justice for the African community. But the police violence and killings of African people continues. To discuss this with us today, we have Jamal Abagas on the line from his home in Moorhead, Minnesota. In 2020, the city of Moorhead presented Jamal with their Human Rights Award for his work advocating for human rights of the African community in the aftermath of the police killing of George Floyd. Today, Jamal is an organizer with the African People's Socialist Party and is preparing to travel to the Minneapolis area to promote the Uhuru Movement's program, Black Community Control of the Police. Uhuru Jamal, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. Uhuru, uhuru comrades. Thank you all very much for uh, having me on the show today. Thank you very much as well for that <laughs> great introduction. I'm happy to be on. Uhuru Jamal, so here we go again. Here we go again. Another African has been killed by the state. But before we get into basically this whole sort of regular playbook that's already playing out, what can you tell us about the shooting of Dante Wright? Well, as uh, as you know, Dante Wright was a, a driver in uh, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, just driving along. Um, he and the mother of his child. Uh, he was pulled over by uh, the police officer, uh, Kim Potter, um, allegedly for an expired uh, expired registration. Now, one thing that makes that especially um, devastating in this instance uh, is because in the state of Minnesota, during uh, our series of COVID emergencies, um, a lot of the... Uh, Department of Motor Vehicles offices have been closed, known as Department of Vehicle Services out here. And the governor was directing uh, law enforcement to not pull over people with those types of offenses. So why the officer felt as if uh, she needed to go out of her way uh, to do that, I don't think we'll ever know. Um, Also, in this instance, um, they said that uh, once he had stopped, it was found that he was uh, was found to have a warrant out for his arrest. Well, the court actually mailed the summons to the wrong address, so Dante actually never knew that he was suspected or that he he was going to be arrested or that he had run afoul of the law in that way. Now the Officer, as we now know, uh, was uh, reportedly uh, was reported to have yelled "Taser, Taser, Taser," and then pulls out her firearm and shoots him in the chest. Now, that is utterly ridiculous, and I'm going to go into that excuse here in just a second. But you're also not supposed to tase people in the chest. You could kill them. We could just as easily be here about 
him being killed with a taser. Uh, it doesn't really matter if, if the police are using a knee or a taser or a gun. They really just need to stop murdering people. They need to stop murdering African people. Now, back to that excuse. The excuse of, oh, I meant to pull a taser. Uh, you might immediately uh, recognize it was the same excuse that was used uh, by a police officer, Johannes Meserly, when he shot Oscar Grant in the back at Fruitvale Station in Oakland, California in 2009. Now, in that instance, the police had arrived. They were called. Uh, these are transit cops called by a, uh, a transit operator who allegedly saw that there was a fight on the train. There was a fight. The fight had stopped. And Oscar helped break it up. He was then detained. One officer had his knees on his shoulders. Johannes Measurely had his knees on and on top of was on top of his back, pulled his gun and shot Oscar Grant dead in the back at point blank range. And that tragedy, that murder, he only got a two-year sentence of which he was allowed to serve only 11 months before he left. Um, you might be surprised, however, that this to know that this has happened uh, in other places, too. Uh, this is, you know, it's happened in New Hope, Pennsylvania in 2019. Uh, it happened uh, when it happened in Loris Lawrence, Kansas, um, with the, the shooting of Akira Chantel Lewis. Um, it happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, when uh, the police uh, shot Eric Harris in 2015. Fact being, this colonial force is absolutely willing to lie to our faces and, and blame some sort of training error, as opposed to own up to the fact that you know, they'd really just prefer us dead. They really need to oppress us, kill us, try to keep us in line. And they're cowards about it at every turn. So. Uhura. Uhura, thank context. you. Uhura, thank you, Jamal. Um, every time an African is killed, um, as you're talking about, we see the same old colonial playbook pull being pulled out. The media is already criminalizing the victim. We see the usual lawyers lining up for the payday while also calling for peace. Reformers are also calling for cops to undergo diversity training and wear cameras. How have you seen this colonial plan, this colonial game plan playing out in the Dante Wright case? And that's, that's a real good question here. So the, the media circus you're already starting to see um, includes the, you know, big cable television news stations uh, sending their reporters on the ground to quote unquote cover uh, the situation. Really, they're, they're just there to stand next to what looks like a dumpster fire as far as and, and sell ads right next to it. Um, it's, it's really despicable um, because these people are out here struggling. They're fighting in a, a war um, for their lives, for liberation. However, uh, unguided or undisciplined they may be, and and uh, these grifters, this type of grifter, media grifter, is is there with no knowledge of the people on the ground, no real investment in their stories, no interest in really telling those stories. However, they are always interested in telling stories of the petty bourgeois uh, who might have their windows broken, or uh, they might. Uh, be affected in uh, in the uprising by people going in and taking what they need, taking what was taken from them. And I think that's really important to note. One thing that people always miss or always seek to uh, deny when they cover these stories is the relationship between imperial violence by the police and capital. And specifically the capital of the petty bourgeois. Nobody 
in the petty bourgeois is there because they paid their workers a living wage. So they engage in wage theft, and the police exist to protect them in their quote in their legal theft. So I can't possibly shed a tear uh, for the petty bourgeois business owner who who finds themselves in that situation. And uh, it's real easy. If they didn't want their stores burned, they could have stayed open and not gave people water, gave people shelter from the tear gas. They could have actually stood with the community if they felt as if, you know, they were a part of the community. Uh, but they hid and they were more than willing to let the police brutalize people to protect their property. Um, that narrative, however, is being as it's being sold in the cable television news uh, realm, seeks to discredit struggle. It seeks to uh, make people shake their heads at at uh, the futility of the efforts as they see it. Um, it's wildly dishonest, and it, it tries to paint some sort of uh, unity message. You know, we've got the, the, why are you doing this to your own community? They, these people don't own in the community. These people are renters. They don't, they don't own this community. They don't own this business. One, one set of people owns that business. It's really ridiculous. However, it, it feeds also into the next narrative, next set of narratives, which is about, uh, black capitalism. Right. Fred Hampton, you know, said, if capitalism doesn't work for your people, why do I want it for my people? Um, however, uh, the neoliberal and the neocolonial mindset uh, seeks to use the, the specter of a rising tide lifting all boats, quote unquote, uh, to include uh, black folks as, as becoming a part of the petty bourgeois. And somehow that's supposed to save us. Of course, we know that's not true. Uh, the petty bourgeois and the capitalist classes exist on the exploitation of workers. And those workers will always be the African working class. I will always be members of the indigenous working classes of the world. And uh, uh, just because you have a white power and black face does not mean that uh, uh, the African nation is liberated. So that's just a, a brief on that. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Now, let's talk about life on the ground up there. Minnesota has been voted amongst the best places to live for white North Americans by the colonial media. However, for Africans, Minnesota, the Minneapolis area in particular, was voted fourth worst place to live. In fact, Four of the top five worst places that Africans have voted to live are in the upper Midwest. As Malcolm X said, the American dream for us is the American nightmare. What can you tell us about the conditions for Africans and other colonized people in the upper Midwest region? Well, I would say... When I when you, you you tell me about these studies, I would say that that totally tracks. Um, you know, they've got the the saying Midwestern nice. They'll call it Minnesota nice, or North Dakota nice, or whatever they want to call it. Uh, it it's it's a uh, a double it has a double edged meaning. Um, I heard it said once that uh, in Minnesota, you know, somebody will give you directions anywhere, but if you're black in Minnesota, that somebody will give you directions anywhere but to their house, right? They um, want to maintain a veneer of friendliness, which is just a thin veneer, if that at all. Um, but uh, a lot of the, the the white North Americans here are not interested at all in, in, in the equality that they claim they are. And you can only tell that, you can tell that from, from uh, public policy. Uh, one of the reasons why... Uh, uh, the African community here suffers so much is because the uh, the educational system for a long time um, the parts of Minneapolis were subject to you know the worst parts of redlining and even still they have a, a restrictive covenants in lot of lots of the deeds and there have been some work to get those stripped out but it doesn't exactly uh, make reparations for the you know hundreds of years of this kind of behavior and how this public policy can uh, 
uh, can exacerbate and stack the deck against African people. Also, you'll find that uh, the companies here have very bad uh, uh, retention rates for African employees. It's because a lot of times they would just let people harass you. They'll let people harass you. Um, and, and as long as as long as they don't call you uh, the N word, then uh, then then in a lot of places it will fly. Uh, it's the kind of place where a lot of people will try and put put their hands in your hair without asking. You know, they they uh, lots of lots of what are termed as microaggressions, um, and a lot of people would chalk it up to ignorance. So in a lot of ways, you're in a situation where you're dealing with. You're dealing with the colonizer's fascination, right? You know, it's it it's often just gets termed as racism and also gets, you know, just gets classified as racism. And racism then becomes the thing that we have to fight as if it's some thought, as if you can fight some thought in somebody's head if, uh, effectively. Uh, but really, it's just the colonizer's fascination, uh, which is macabre. It's the same kind of fascination that led to the French putting uh, French and German putting Africans in zoos. Uh, it, it's it's the colonizers' fascination with us, uh, which easily passes because, after all, what they really want is to kill us and take our stuff. Right? They want to ke- they want to take our land, our natural resources, and our labor as much as they can. So they don't really see us as full people. And I think that's really at the root of why Minnesota uh, continues to be a place for uh, uh, for violence uh, against uh, African people and uh, why African people need to come together to fight this colonial force and and, and you know white North Americans uh, and and people from all backgrounds need to come together and if they really are truly anti-imperialist, really a truly anti-racist, as they say they are, they'll come together to fight the imperial power, which is materially impoverishing people and killing them and taking their stuff. Oh, yeah, because um, I know a lot of businesses have relocated to the region. I know personally the stories of a lot of Africans who've moved to that region and express the exact same thing, right? The quote unquote, what some people might call microaggressions, but in but are not microaggressions, but instead are the regular workings of colonial capitalism mm-hmm. uh, in the workplace uh, and things like that. You also talk about this deep history and the connection to the colonial violence and this history of settler colonialism in the region. You know, and I think that's a region that you know is on both sides of the colonial border, mm-hmm. you know, what uh, and stuff like that. Um, it surely doesn't stop at the invisible line that separates the United States and Canada. So, uh, what do you think about that? How, how can we even link some of this uh, colonial violence Africans endure in the region to this real history of colonial violence and settler colonialism in the region? Well, I think you can draw a straight through line. Uh, to African immigrants today, such as those in the Somali community, and members of the Somali community have been assassinated by the police too uh, within the last 12 months. Um, You can draw that line all the way back to uh, when, you know, indigenous peoples were first uh, pushed off their land. You know, the the Anishinaabe, um, the Hidatsa, Mandan, um, the, you know, the... You've got a number of of reservations out here that represent, you know, um, White Earth, uh, Red Lake, Lower Sioux. Uh, you've got Standing Rock in North Dakota. You've got uh, Turtle Mountain in North Dakota, uh, and and just across the just across the border in Canada. There, I mean, you've got. What, here's one fun thing that people don't understand. You. You probably think you need a passport to cross the border. If you are an indigenous person, because you have a treaty right uh, to go and access your lands, you um, get a special ID if you're a member of those particular tribes, and you can just cross the border with that. And you know what? The Border Patrol 
gives those people a difficult time every time. And, and they are very rude about it. Um, colonial settler violence is a necessary feature of this uh, particular project that is the United States because it was always about stealing resources and funneling those resources back to quote-unquote civilization. If you if you have any question about that, just look at how um, how the population in the United States is actually uh, devied up, right? You've got um, a lot of people on the West Coast, but the majority of this country lives in, on the in the east uh, near the eastern seaboard. And it's not just because, <clears throat> excuse me, that's that's in part because that's where the English settlers um, arrived and established their most enduring colonies. Um, those were supposed to be colonial ports to ship things back to Europe. Once the American, uh, once the North American uh, got free from their own colonial masters and sought to become colonial masters in their own right, they just continued to proceed west and steal land, commit genocide, and funnel those resources back to the east. So um, I hope I answered that question, but I, that's that's where I see it. I see it as a through line to every group of people that have come here who've had their labor stolen, their culture stolen, uh, their land stolen, their lives uh, shortened by this project to just continue to suck wealth uh, to benefit uh, white North American colonizer. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Jamal Abagas. So the Derek Chauvin trial is happening right now. What are people saying about the trial on the ground in Minnesota? I would say uh, a number of things. I would, there are a lot of people who are eager to see it happen. There are a lot of people who don't understand why we have to go through this farce of a trial. Um, we all saw him do it. Uh, the defense, uh, which is now proceeding with their case uh, today, had, they are proceeding with a theory of their case that states that it was drugs that killed George Floyd and not uh, the knee on the neck, not the prone restraint, not the uh, the asphyxiation that was caused by the knee on the neck, uh, which is really on top of being disturbing, very insulting. Um, and, and so in that way, people are very mad. And then again, people are very mistrustful. Um, the first officer to ever go to jail for shooting somebody uh, was a Somali cop when he shot uh, Justine Ruzchek. Um And this was, uh, I believe he shot her a couple years ago now. I think it was in 2019. But um, that was the first time ever. Before then, you know, Jamar Clark, his his murderers didn't go to, didn't go to prison. Uh, Philando Castile's murderers didn't go to prison. Um, the the so so what it what it comes out as being here is on the ground. A lot of people just don't think that uh, that even with all the evidence that was presented and that was consistent with what everybody's seen around the world, that he's actually going to face any consequences. Personally, I think there's going to be a hung jury. I I don't see a straight conviction as the most likely outcome. Um. Well, you so know, that, let ahead. me ask you this question, mm -hmm. because one of the talking points I hear in the colonial media about the Chauvin trial is this is a litmus test. The world is watching. Let's say Chauvin is found guilty. What does that mean to the overall history of anti-black colonial violence? Would Absolutely that be progress? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. No. The uh, Derek Chauvin is going to be thrown. Uh, he, he's going to be thrown aside because what he's done, which was his job to oppress and, and murder black people, uh, in this particular instance, has threatened the entire colonial project. People are very upset, and these are revolutionary times. 
and they understand fully that uh, the stakes are literally the foundation of this colonial uh, uh, system that they've built. So they're more than willing to dispose him, dispose of him, excuse me. Um, but that doesn't, it's not going to change the, the police officers who brutalize people every day, but don't uh, kill people. Um, during this trial, there was an arrest in, I believe it was South Minneapolis, um, wherein uh, a number of black teenagers were in the community and they were standing and watching uh, the police. The police started pushing them away and then started beating up the kids. There was an officer on video just giving straight haymakers to these teenagers, dragging them to the ground and continuing to hit him in the head. Now, that person is not going to jail. You're not hearing anything about that. That doesn't suddenly become a litmus test for the law, right? Um, justice denied. Uh, justice delayed is justice denied in this particular instance. Um, and we know that justice is still going to be denied us uh, on an institutional basis. This one off means nothing. Uhuru, Uhuru. So two testimonies stood out to me. Um, one was of the younger sister that spoke of how she felt helpless by her inability to intervene in Chauvin's brutal, brutal murder of George Floyd. Then the other one was from a brother who was a martial artist who had said similar things. So it seems to suggest that Africans are tired of sitting defenseless. It seems to point towards the collective yearn for power. You agree with that? I would say so. And and I mean, this is where, you know, the, the African People's Socialist Party is really, um, really hitting the mark here. Um, we have, uh, as a party, uh, for a very long time called for um, black community control of the police. We understand fully that the uh, police is an occupying imperial force and that we won't have peace while they're around. Um, and so if you, I mean, APSPUHURU.org, go ahead and check that out. Check out the 14-point the platform. It, it, it says right there, that's uh, pulling it up right here. Point eight on on the fourteen point platform says quite clearly we we want an immediate withdrawal of the U.S. police from our oppressed and exploited communities. Um, we believe that the various U.S. police agencies which occupy our communities are arms of the U.S. colonial state, which is responsible for keeping our people enslaved and terrorized. These agencies they don't serve us. They aren't designed to serve us, uh, and they all they represent the first line of defense and the first line of attack of the U.S. Uh, colonial system uh, and always thwart our struggle for peace. Uh, and, and they're an illegitimate standing army in African communities. They must be removed um, in, in must be replaced by forces of our own uh, to uh, you know, to, to make sure that our own communities are safe. If we're ever going to have a modicum of peace. And um, I mean, just to elaborate further here, the, you know, the a black community control of the police, um, not only is just a, a point in our program or in our platform, it's also, you know, a campaign that we, that we push, that we uh, work for, both in the African People's Socialist Party uh, and uh, in NPDOM, it's the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, which is a mass organization under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. And you can find them at NPDUM, I-N-P-D-U-M dot O-R-G. And, and you can go there if you're interested in this kind of work. And I believe... Most African people at this point are interested in black community control of the police. And we're actually going to be going down uh, to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis area, going to the Brooklyn Center area. And we're going to be putting this message to the people on the ground. Um, the rural movement forces are going to be there. So if you are in the Minneapolis Twin Cities area, if you're in Brooklyn Center, if you're in anywhere in that Metroplex you can find us. We'll be on the front lines. 
You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Jamal Abagas. So, Jamal, you actually already started talking about it. So, I, you know, I really want to salute your clairvoyance. <laughs> <laughs> Point eight of the African People's Socialist Party working platform defines the police as a domestic colonial military force. It reads, we need, we want the immediate withdrawal of the police from our oppressed and exploited communities. We believe that the various U.S. police agencies which occupy our communities are arms of the U.S. colonial estate which is responsible for keeping our people enslaved and terrorized. We believe that the U.S. police agencies do not serve us, but instead represent the first line of U.S. defense against the just struggle of our people for peace, dignity, and socialist democracy. Therefore, we believe the U.S. is an illegitimate standing army, a colonial army in the African community, and must withdraw immediately from our community to be replaced by our liberation forces who struggle in defense of our community and against our oppression demonstrate their loyalty to our community and their willingness to serve in its interests. So how does this describe the objective conditions of African life in the U.S. and beyond for you? I mean, for me personally, it it just lays out the the state of things as they are. When I read that for the first time, it was a real clarification. You know, one thing that's, um, a lot of things that aren't taught to us, uh, in in school among those, uh, one thing is really not understood is how the United States operates as an internal colony, right? Everyone thinks, oh, the United States, how, how how is it, uh, an internally colonized place? Or what does that even mean? Um, you know the the United States got its independence from from England and and you know that's that not in the slightest this was always a colonial project the lands that we the lands that this uh, country were started on were stolen and people were killed people were murdered and in order to expand that had to continue you see uh, uh, a number of laws, the entire concept of a racial caste system, it was it was propagated in the United States, was explicitly to uh, only protect the white landed uh, colonizer, right? The, the, the land owning uh, colonizer. And African bodies, African people, African lives, African culture, everything that we are, that we bring was imported, was stolen, right, from the African continent to come here so that we could work their land and generate profits for them, generate revenues and profits for them, for the colonizer. Now, the overseer has always been a part of that system. And ever since the beginning of of policing in the United States uh, with the Fugitive Slave Act, the police have always seen us as people to target. Even when, you know, we were uh, out of formal bondage, out of formal slavery, the, uh, the police forces still went to terrorize our communities. Because, of course, if we can just prove the one fallacy in their whole silly um, racist idea, it really destroys uh, uh, a root of their colonial project, right? It's, It's that somehow we're not good enough to do for ourselves. We can't do for ourselves. Racism really functions as a religion to the colonizer in that way. It's what they tell themselves to justify killing us and stealing our stuff. And to that end, the colonizer, through the police force, has to keep uh, their boots on our neck in order to keep us down, in order to maintain uh, 
the power of this fallacy. We we don't need an imperial force. We don't need people who are going to go in our communities, who are going to hassle children, who are going to pull guns on children, who are going to, uh, you know, hassle um, uh, women, old ladies, who are going to hassle, you know, just men and, and, and boys walking through the neighborhood. Um, that's not policing. That's not making anybody better. That's not making anybody feel safe. There are needs for... There are needs that the African people have to feel safe in their own communities. But we know those. And we love us a lot more than people recognize. And we can solve those. But uh, the colonial police force is not about that. They're about division, terror, shock and awe. And so whenever they come through, uh, they cause that. So to me, identifying that material condition uh just really paints a stark, uh, stark view on, on who they are and what they represent in this colonial system. Oh, so Jamal, um, as you spoke about, one of the demands you all are putting forward is black community control of police, and black community control of police is an anti-colonial demand that does not depend on the false hope that the colonial ruling class will develop a conscience and stop killing us. It states that only power in our hands can stop the colonial murder. Can you um, deepen that discussion some more for us? Absolutely. Um, a demand is not something that we are going to make and feel as if with some uh, somehow they are going to give it to us. Just as you said, the African people, the African nation needs to unite under the leadership of the African people's socialist party in order to make this goal happen. And it is with that leadership, the African people's socialist party as the advanced detachment of, uh, the African working class, our Vanguard party. Uh, we have the, uh, we will, you know, develop the African working class in all of its skills and create our own forces as needed to do this. We're not asking people to do it for us. We are doing. And a lot of, I was having a conversation with an organizer here and, and, uh, uh, I was speaking with her. She was telling me, you know, what we really need is unity. That unity is key. It's that unity that's going to turn the anger of hundreds of protesters in the streets facing down a police line into a disciplined force, which can protect itself and push those imperial forces out. So, Jamal, one of the campaigns you are helping to organize is the Africans Charge Genocide Campaign. The campaign was organized in response to the colonial murder of Mike Brown in Ferguson, St. Louis, Missouri, the Flint water crisis, and the drowning of three African girls by Pinellas County, Florida sheriff deputies. It really took off last year in response to the murder of George Floyd, gaining over 100,000 signatures. The petition charges, quote, that the United States government has historically committed the crime of genocide against African people inside its borders and continues to do so today, often with the complicity of many U.S. citizens. After everything we talked about today, why is this an important campaign for people to get behind? The African genocide, African charge genocide campaign is a really important campaign for people to get behind because what it really does is it asserts our human rights, essentially. People make the state. And if the African nation wants its freedom, it, that it will happen because its people uh, declare it for themselves. This uh, project is actually right in line with the African People's Socialist Party's work for years and has been. The African People's Socialist Party has uh, held a tribunal wherein we charged uh, the United States with this genocide of, of, of African peoples, and they were found guilty. When uh, held to uh, their own UN standards, right, when presented with the factual evidence of how African people have been treated in this nation uh, since the earliest, since the first, uh, to now, it is undeniable that what the uh, United States government has been perpetrating against African people is a genocide. And so, 
uh, signing this petition here is just one more act of pushing away and pushing back at a system that wants us dead. And you can uh, find this at uh, africanschargegenocide.org. You can sign this petition. You can read the full petition and you can share that petition around. And you can actively uh, push this movement forward. Uh, again, that that uh, project is is one that's been hosted by uh, the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Um, but this is uh, the broader movement's work, right? This is part of raising the political awareness of the African nation, getting them involved in this struggle, and uh, furthering the work of the vanguard party of the African working class to win our liberation. Uhuru, yeah, thanks for that, Jamal. Yep. Now, um, you know, last year, in response to the colonial murder of George Floyd, thousands of protests happened in scores of countries around the world. In this conversation, we have importantly advanced the colonial question. We have underscored the violence against Africans as colonial at its base, not simply just uh, the outgrowth of racism or something like that. Now, I know that you have family even in East Africa, right? Um, and there's a large community of African people from East Africa in Minnesota and other parts of the uh, Midwest and upper Midwest and stuff like that. So... Why is it important in your mind for us to broadcast internationally as a form of international solidarity that this is colonial, these are colonial contradictions that we are struggling against and fighting to overturn as African people? I'm Ethiopian. You know, my father is from Ethiopia. My mother was born here, but that doesn't make me any less African, right? When you look at the international struggle and the international effects of colonialization of African peoples, you're looking at one unified struggle. Despite language, despite uh, false colonial borders, we are at our root a people who are experiencing the same thing, and we are from the same <laughs> we are from the same general portion of the world, and we are all being maligned for the same reasons, for the fact that we are being Africans. And, you know, as you know, again, I, I am Ethiopian. We've been fighting colonization for hundreds of years. You know, we've, we've pushed back. We've pushed back a number of times. Um, it has been recorded in history. Uh, we've repelled the Italians twice. You know, we, we've been, you know, we had wars with the British. You know what I'm saying? We, we've, we've fought the colonial powers. We, we managed to do that. Uh, you look at um, a, the Minnesota area. You, there's a... There's a relatively sizable Ethiopian population here, but primarily it's uh, Somali. Uh, and the Somali people in Minnesota have, they've come and even in the face of this uh, uh, oppression, they've they've relatively, they've managed to flourish in a lot of ways. A lot of that is because they protect uh, their language, they protect their culture, and they do try to protect each other. Now, of course, the colonial project uh, will have, you know, Africans who were born here turn and look at Africans uh, who came here as if they're somehow different, weird, foreign, primitive. And uh, on the flip side of that, you'll have Africans who've come here uh, being told as a matter of U.S. policy uh, that, you know, Africans who are here, who are from here, are violent. Um, they're they're stupid. They're poor. You know what I mean? They they say all kinds of things to get us to fight each other. As we've seen through uprisings, when we come together, we are a mighty force indeed. I don't know if folks remember last year uh, in in the imagery that was coming from uh, uh, from the streets of Minneapolis and St. Paul. But I mean, you saw everybody who was down there fighting. You saw, you saw people who were born here, Africans who were born here, Africans, uh, whose family, um, wasn't born here, but they were born here. You saw, um, people from every corner of the world who have come here 
for one reason or another. You saw indigenous people fight. You even saw white uh, North Americans fighting. There was a sister uh, in hijab who kicked uh, who kicked away a um, tear gas can like it was a soccer ball, kicked it back at the police. So you can't really tell me that we can't be united. Right. Because we already stand united in so many ways. Um, but what we need to do is strategically remain united after these flashpoints. We need to make sure that our revolutionary fervor is not exhausted in three nights a week, a summer. What we need is unity. Uh, we need discipline and we need uh, strategy in order to build uh, both economically um, through a matter of, you know, uh, ability to defend ourselves and through building sound minds, uh, we need to come together and win our liberation as a whole. So. Right. Uhuru, uhuru. Also sounds like what you're saying is what we need is organization, right? Absolutely. Organization. Absolutely. And it's the leadership that the, that the African people's socialist party, uh, provides and can provide. You know, we talk about reparations in the African People's Socialist Party. We've been talking about reparations for decades. Reparations came into common parlance, you know, maybe in the last, I don't know what, 10 or so years. A lot of people might want to attribute that to Ta-Nehisi Coates, but that's that's something that the party's been saying for longer than Ta-Nehisi Coates has been out of college. Uh, you know, we reparations is, is, is a demand that we make, but we know that the colonizer is not going to give it to us we have to win it. Uh, so that's that's the kind of leadership and organization that we can provide. The party line ends up in uh, popular discourse, even if begrudgingly, because we repeat it so much. We repeat it so much. And because when you take the histori historical materialist point of view, it is correct, right? This is a, re this is a revolutionary science. Uh, this is not just a whirlwind of passions or, or, or uh, a pile of beliefs that we have structured together. This is, this is applying uh, the study of history and, and practice to the uh, conditions, to the material conditions that the African nation finds itself in. And, and we're winning as a result. So if you want to um, go ahead and uh, give that information again, how people can support your organizing efforts on the ground in Minnesota, where can they go to get that information? Uh, and you can go to impedum.org to get more information about that. You can find us on Facebook. And for more information on the African People's Socialist Party, uh, people can go to APSPUHURU.org. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Jamal Abigas. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Jamal Abigas, for joining us today. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in.